Hello, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland. I'm one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. My word, Kenobi, has been a love letter to everything I love about Star Wars. And with me to talk about the Kenobi finale are two other lawyers and a Space Force officer. So Christine Peake, uh, who is in her Imperial Garb from our uh, Storm Trooper defective body armor mock trial that uh, uh, was still my favorite mock trial to, to do. Uh, Bethany Lanton, who is in Space Force and does not speak for the United States government and is here purely for fun on her own free time and is in no way at work. So she's at home and it's totally cool and legal. And also uh, Stantola Field, who we keep going on adventures together and uh, it's been a lot of fun this summer. So uh, from Star Wars Celebration, we're now gearing up for Comic-Con. It's gonna rock. And before we nerd out on all the legal issues, let's go around the horn alphabetically on uh, by first name on what did the finale mean to you, Bethany? Oh my goodness. I. For me, Kenobi was a slow burn of a show. I've always loved the character of Obi-Wan. I love this time frame set in the galaxy. Uh, But I I had a hard time uh, really feeling like I was fully into this series. And somehow uh, the finale just brought everything together. I laughed. I cried uh, multiple times, maybe, possibly. Um, and it, it was just, it was so moving, uh, and so incredible to see Obi-Wan kind of come into his own again, but yeah, I'll stop gushing. Christine. So, um, I think what I liked best about the final episode was the fight between, um, Obi-Wan and Vader. That was a really great combat sequence. And I felt there was a lot of character um, development happening. I I felt like I met Vader on another level that I hadn't previously seen before. I love what they did um, with the the voice at the end of the fight where it's kind of going in between um, the Darth Vader voice and Anakin's voice. Um, So that was definitely a favorite for me. I will say I, um, I love getting to see Riva in a, in a fight scene as well, but I was left at the end wanting a little bit more, Riva, when they were going through at the end and doing the um, sort of the de ma for all the characters, I, I would have liked to see a little bit more for her. I'll stop there. Stephen. Great. Yeah, I um, I totally agree. The, uh, the fight sequence uh, kind of pushed all the buttons that we thought we were, that we thought were pushed in A New Hope in 1977. But that fight scene between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan is just like a whole other level in the season finale with like the lifting rocks and um, the the crevasse and it was uh, totally next level very extra and I loved it but I will say I think my favorite moment was the um, little conversation between Obi-Wan and, and Leia at the very end because um, that just kind of captures to me what Star Wars is it's about 
giving good values to children and giving them the idea and empowering children with their imaginations, with their, with their um, looking forward. You won't always be 10, as Obi-Wan says. Um, and so that it's time for you to start thinking about what you're going to be when you grow up and how you can use your gifts for good. Um, I just love that. And cry, cry, cry. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I have three nieces. And uh, yeah, that, that was like, oh, God, that's so adorable. And uh, the need to FaceTime all of them and see how they're doing. So uh, they they did that really well. And that young actress is amazing with the with how emotive she is. And they they capture the spirit of Leia. And that kid rocks with how they how they do it. So uh, it was all very good. Um, so yeah. Very, very happy. Uh, I also think that lightsaber fight might have been the best live action ever. Um, I will say that Kenobi is my favorite character. And then Imwei uh, from Rogue One is saying, because I like Question of Faith. And those two really hit that well for me. So I, I was extremely happy with this. Uh, Watching the first two episodes, uh, I did a celebration with Christine on my iPad, which was tethered to her phone, so that way we had uh, internet for it. So that adventure and like taking 45 minutes in order to be able to watch it was cool. So I, I have nothing but joy for this. And I was fine with the slow burn because Tatooine always stops slow. So so anyway, let's get legal and military as we get into the many issues from this. So let's talk about the legality of uh, the imperial pursuit of the refugees on the path. I'm just going to go out there and say that this is a crime against humanity because you're hunting refugees. It's, it's bad. Anyone else want to tag in on why this is bad? Kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, yeah. That's that's just bad. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like it's in a how to be an evil bad guy one hundred and one handbook somewhere. Yeah, let's go kill children. Like that never, ever means you're in the right. And even yeah. So again, all all bad. Um, all very bad. But. Let's get into the next issue that gets the mortal combat of Vader and Kenobi. So Christine, being the research hawk that you are, you looked up at all the law of dueling. Walk us through that, just, just the good old days. I actually think that might've been Steven, but I'm not sure. But, oh, it is the initial, but I, did, I did take a look at um, some, some California law on um, how, Mutual combat, I think, was your prompt. So I did take a look at some California law on how mutual combat plays into the right to self-defense. Um, so I will, I will defer to Stephen if he wants to start talking about dueling, though, because because it is a duel, and so worth 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 a comment. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, the, that um, situation between them just looked to me like there were two people who had a score to settle, um, which made me think of um, made me think of a duel. But um, Christine, you dug up some really interesting stuff about um, about mutual combat and victim compensation, which seemed like a really cool thing to talk about first. Well, so I kind of I, I, had, I saw there was a regulation um, in there that um, relates to this this. Um, scheme that California has for compensating victims. I think the real action here though, is that you've got um, a fight going on and you know the question about what's the legal significance of mutual combat, especially if Obi-Wan is the initial aggressor. Um, as he seems to be, I think you could maybe make an argument for either of them being the initial aggressors, but I just think the argument is much, much better for Obi-Wan being the initial aggressor. Um, since he seems to keep finding excuses to go one-on-one with Vader, like all of these different scenarios, you know, he, he did it in episode five and then all of a sudden in episode six, oh my gosh, I've got to go fight Vader. I, you know, I'm going to come up with some reason why this is imperative that I do this now. Um, so, um, so yeah, so we have this fight, um, and if, if Obi-Wan is either the initial aggressor or he's engaged in mutual combat, that could potentially take away his right to self to argue self-defense and so um vader comes out of this fight looking pretty worse for wear he's definitely wearing it worse at the end than obi-wan is um and so there's a risk perhaps that in a system where obi-wan would be held accountable for this he could be liable for criminal assault and battery against the um is it the commander-in-chief of the imperial military at this point uh, so pretty important figure in the imperial military. Um, and so, um, so there's some rules about this. So if you're, um, somebody, if you're starting a fight or if the person is engaging in mutual combat, then they only have a right to self-defense if they, number one, actually and in good faith tried to stop fighting. And number two, indicated by word or conduct to the opponent in a way that a reasonable, per- reasonable person would understand that they wanted to stop fighting um, and that they, or that they had stopped fighting. And in the case of mutual combat, um, actually gave the opponent um, a chance to stop fighting. And if you do those things and your opponent continues to fight, um, then at that point, um, you may regain the right to self-defense. Yeah, that all sounds right. Um, I actually think there's an argument that it, that ignores the imperial pursuit of the like and that's part of the problem with that is what kenobi does is to divert the imperial forces hunting down and killing all the refugees Mm. so i don't think that makes him the aggressor i'm like yeah he goes and waits on the planet uh they vader could have kept pursuing him in the star destroyer and to shoot him out of the sky instead he goes I'm going to land and take them on one on one, which does put this very squarely in the dual category. But I don't, I have a tough time with Kenobi as the aggressor because it's a sacrifice play so others may live. Uh, but I agree, it's complicated and it's not a normal fact pattern we would want in civil society. I do think there is an argument to be made on both sides for, for one being the initial aggressor, right? Like you could argue the case that it's really Vader and the Imperials that are the aggressor. Um, but I think it's hard to get around agreement to fight, right? Like oh, yeah. fight is mutual combat if it's mutual consent. 
And here you've got Vader saying, have you come to destroy me? And Obi-Wan says, I will do what I must. And he actually draws first. And then Vader says, you will die. It seems like there's an agreement there. I mean, granted, this is, I'm not messing around. Uh, I'm tired of you killing. I saw you snap that kid's neck. I'm tired of this. We're, I'm done. So, I, I mean, I get that. But this is, uh, you know, when we did a panel with the Colorado Attorney General, he made a comment about, uh, about Thor beheading Thanos as there are some things that just exceed the jurisdiction of a court, uh, something along those lines. And this, this could be falling into that category. Uh, but uh, Bethany, from you know, the military officer in you, and we have the Grand Inquisitor trying to keep Vader on mission. And it almost looks like he rolls his eyes when it's like, no, we're going after Kenobi. From, like, what's your reaction on that? <laughs> Just as a professional. If, if I were at the Grand Inquisitor, or if I were uh, a commander's exec, executive officer, uh, charged with, like, helping that commander achieve their goals and their unit's goals, I would be frustrated because... I would want to know what it was about Kenobi that made him so much more important as a singular individual than this entire group of uh, rebels and traitors, essentially, from, from the Imperial perspective. Uh, so if, if there is something that Darth Vader knows about Kenobi in terms of like senses through the force that this is the person that's the biggest threat to the dark side, essentially, then that is something that the Inquisitors should be told about. So it, it, it kind of goes back to the, the debate around Poe in some ways, which all of you are extremely familiar with, uh, but it, it behooves military leadership to bring in the those that execute the mission, whatever the mission may be, into the reason behind the mission. Because otherwise you have people who are trying to execute a commander's vision, not really knowing exactly what that vision is. Uh, so there's definitely communication issues and the Grand Inquisitor seems to, with his unspoken attitude and even some of his little bit of spoken attitude, seems to think that this is purely personal which means that the Grand Inquisitor and the other Inquisitors who follow him may not be as fully on board as Vader would want them to be. Because yes, they're all in the military. Yes, Darth Vader is incredibly powerful. But if you don't get that buy-in from your team, they're, they're not going to do a good job. And I would add that when Kenobi leaves, that Star Destroyer is gone. Like they went... See ya. And does that mean the Grand Inquisitor's filing a report with the Emperor? And that's why Vader gets a performance improvement plan at the end of the episode. Uh, so there's, he's basically having an HR meeting with the Emperor at the end. And he, the yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, was, I was curious about that too, because it seems to me that the Emperor is so calculating and so, um, so methodical and thorough about making sure that the Jedi are extinguished um, to kind of prevent any sort of hope 
um, which is a theme running through all the Star Wars movies, preventing those seeds from taking root. So I'm, I was so surprised that it seemed uncharacteristic of him to be like, ah, just let that one go. <laughs> it's it's fine. Focus. Focus, Vader. <laughs> it's like, hey, buddy, I know you've done a lot of real good work. I also know he cut off three of your limbs. But dig in. Big picture. So there's there's that feeling. Uh, but I guess this duel, man, that was everything. Like that was everything I've wanted to see in a Star Wars lightsaber fight all done at once. So lots of good stuff there. Let's talk about contracts, which is the thing that most people, you know, immediately think of when it comes to Star Wars. And we have Haja's promise to Obi-Wan to take a home. Is that an enforceable uh, performance contract? And Christine or Stephen, which one of you would like to take that first? I suspect we have similar ideas. Contracts, yeah. Well, I, um, I'm not a transactional attorney, I never was. Um, so I'm probably the last person to chime in on this. But Christine, do you have more insight? Um, sure, sure. So I'll try to go over, over the basics. So, um, so for purposes of, of California law, well, first let's, let's go over the, the sequence. So Obi-Wan says, you must promise me that you'll get her home. And Haja says, you have my word. But then even he, Haja himself concedes that, well, maybe actually my word's not worth very much. So what happens if he just doesn't do it? Is, is, can Obi-Wan say anything about this? Um, so, so to prove the existence of a contract, Obi-Wan, if this were contested, Obi-Wan would have to show that the, the terms were clear enough that the parties could each understand what they were supposed to do. And here it's pretty simple, you know, take her home. Um, so that's one thing, um, that the parties agreed to the terms of the contract. That seems also, you know, pretty clear. Haja says, I give you my word. Um, you know, and, and Obi-Wan tells him, you know, you've got to promise me. And so maybe you know, you can argue about which is offering, which is acceptance, but it seems like we're agreed on what's supposed to happen here. Um, so I think the the next thing is really the, the issue, right? So the parties have to agree to give each other something of value. So a promise to do something or not to do something that has some value. Um, and here, Haja's promise to get Leia home is probably good enough on his end, but what is Obi-Wan really promising to do for Haja, does he really agree to give him anything of value? And I think that you can argue that he does because Obi-Wan is agreeing to attempt to draw Vader off so that Haja and the others can escape. That benefits others besides Haja, but maybe that doesn't really matter because Haja still gets the benefit. Um, he gets to escape, Leia gets to go home and Obi-Wan gets whatever security there is to be had in knowing that Haja's taking her home. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, just to argue the other side a little bit, um, it's not something that Haja specifically requested Obi-Wan to do. Obi-Wan really wants to do it no matter what. Um, and, and Haja is really the one sort of accommodating that request. And so, you know, so maybe, maybe that's, that's not quite enough. But even if it's not, um, you know, Obi-Wan might think about whether the equitable doctrine of promissory estoppel might, might apply if he, if he relied on Haja's word to his detriment in deciding to leave the ship and leave Leia and pursue Vader instead, um, and his reliance was reasonable. Um, then, then perhaps he could have some um, some argument on another theory. But, uh, but yeah, I think I think he has an argument that Hush has got to be held to his word. 
I, yeah, that's I yeah, I agree. This is a, I think it's a valid performance contract because when the consideration is I will take on the Dark Lord of the Sith, you know, like he, that's more than a peppercorn. So like we are, that's, that's a, that's a big, big swing. Um, and saying like, you get to take a little girl home. Okay. <laughs> like seems to be less risk, even though I wouldn't want Leia mad at me, but still there seems to be less risk there uh with 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 them so yeah i i think it's enforceable uh, and it, again it's also one of the stellar star wars moments of you know like good enough for me and which is just that faith in people and redemption and people getting a second chance to to move ahead uh with so that, i'm not Oh, yes. Bethany. So I, I'm not a legal expert, but would the uh, enforceability of the contract uh, be able to be considered if, like, considering that Leia is a minor and therefore there'd be like an element of neglect if the contract weren't adhered to? The, uh, the child safety aspect is well done, identifying that. So uh, you a couple arguments here. One could be that Kenobi does have basically a really broad permission slip to keep Leia alive to get her home. And the, the parents knew that there was risk because she had been kidnapped. So there's like, this isn't normal. Like Uncle Ben is not taking little Leia out to the museum. Like this is go rescue my daughter so she doesn't die. Different level of, of uh, care there. Uh, he is entrusted with her safety. So ensuring that uh, her safety is maintained, I think is paramount to him. And it's his legal duty to, to make sure that that happens. Whether it's uh, a or Roken, I do think Roken would be a better bet uh, but Haja does seem pretty motivated by uh, guilt or inspiration to get Leia home. Uh, Stephen, any any thoughts on like the uncle level here? Yeah, that's a great observation, Bethany. I um, because obviously people contract with other adults for the caregiving of children all the time. Um, so that's there's nothing necessarily wrong about that. But the I, the question that raises to me though is whether Ben or Obi-Wan had the delegated authority from, um, from the Organas to make decisions about trusting third parties with the care of, of Leia. That seems a little less um, uh, on the up and up than, than maybe sort of an ordinary you know, parent going to a daycare center and saying, I will give you this amount of money if you take care of my child. Um, so yeah, it's a great observation. I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, it comes up again and again too, right? Because he's he's constantly just through the difficult circumstances having to hand her off to various people, right? But handing her off to somebody like Tala versus handing her off to Roken versus handing her off to Haja, you know, there's there's a difference in, yeah. um, in the reliability of, of the, um, the the caretaker there. That um, yeah, maybe maybe he should think more carefully about that. <laughs> In the in the estoppel argument, maybe it would go to the the reasonableness of his reliance, um, whereas the you know the fact that 
you know, not getting her home could prove disastrous would maybe go to the, the injury, the, the detriment um, of, of it all. You know, if, if Haja had refused and nobody else stepped up, what would he have done? Interesting. Yeah, I, I still think she would have gone on her own. Just thinking back to <laughs> that's probably what I would have asked. Yeah. <laughs> just thinking back to she did get out of those bonds, and we don't know how. So, and and Lola was non-operational. So the kids got skills. Pretty sure she could get back to Alderaan and go like, "Hey, mom. Hey, dad." Like. And there wouldn't be any, qu- yeah, that's, that's our kid. That's how she goes. Well, at least uh, Darth Vader, the Grand Inquisitor, wouldn't be on her trail anymore. Because you could also argue Obi-Wan is having fewer and fewer options as time goes on. Uh, every time he's trying to intersect with the Imperials and essentially keep her from getting slaughtered along with a bunch of other uh, people. It's an interesting character study because he keeps, he's willing to sacrifice himself multiple times, but it's not necessarily, it's like most of those are guilt born until the end when it's, it seems to be more altruistic. Because when he's holding up all the rocks on top of him, uh, and, and it's, oh, look, it's connections that save him. Uh, my read on why Jedi's are just messed up because it's okay to have a human connection. It's thinking about his friend's kids that he feels responsible for that inspire him to go into whoop-ass mode to a degree that we've never seen him do with, I'm just going to throw a bunch of rocks at you all at once and do twirls with a lightsaber from behind my back and then crush your respirator that's my mood, then I'll let you live. So yeah, I, he, he changes. He's willing to sacrifice himself, but it, it changes uh, as it goes on. With that, uh, I wanna talk about in something I, I remember back from law school and the difference between uh, contract law in the United States and Europe, because we have, what's the question for the enforceability of Kenobi's promise to Leia to return? Because there's some issues with promises to children can be enforceable and that gets weird fast. You know, like if it's, I will get junior shoes versus I'll come back alive. So very, very different. But he says to her, I promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, at the same time, he doesn't give the 10-year-old a blaster. He knows not to do that. So like there's, uh, so there's that. So let's talk about uh, contract enforceability. And so Stephen, was it you or was it Christine? Uh, I, I looked into it briefly. Um, I have, it's weirdly, I have a very specific memory of studying this in law school. I, I kind of remember exactly where I was when I was reading these cases and looking into it. It's so funny. I don't know why, but um, but there's a couple topics that just um, uh, resonate with the deepest uh, neurons in my brain. But I remember studying that you can make contracts with children um, and they can be enforceable. However, um, because contracts, uh, because children 
may not appreciate the consequences of their contract formation, any contract with a minor is voidable by the child. So um, any agreement you make with a kid with some exceptions, the kid can just walk away from if they change their mind. So obviously that um, kind of undermines the willingness of a lot of people to make arrangements with children. So the law actually in this weird way limits children's abilities to walk away from certain contracts to kind of protect them, which is a weird way to think about it. But um, contracts for necessities that children enter into like housing or for food or clothes, sometimes cars, if it's um, something that's necess necessary for their, um, for their um, existence, those contracts can be binding and not voidable by the child so that people will actually provide those services um, to, to make sure kids are safe if they're needing to contract on their own. So, um, so as a general matter, um, uh, Obi-Wan could create a contract with Leia, um, but question, you know, sort of whether this is an enforceable contract in the way that there's consideration and detriment on both sides. Um, Leia has a habit throughout her entire history of saying, come back or bring them back, or she's always the center of the, the group and she's always sending people out or reaching out to bring people in. Um, and so she's, this is just maybe one of the first examples when she's like, you will come back to me. Um, and so I don't know if that's so much of a contract or so much of as a um, princess's command, <laughs> but, um, but either way, I think it's very binding on Obi-Wan, at least in its heart. Everyone's just afraid of saying no to her. Oh God, yeah. I mean, even as a 10-year-old, she's so imperious. Yeah, I just be like, yes, I'll do it. I'll do it. Absolutely, those little eyes. More ice cream? Sure. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think whether viewed as a contract or whether viewed as a royal command, the key issue is that it would be dis disaffirmed potentially by Leia, not necessarily by Obi-Wan, um, assuming that indeed a contract was created. Um, and so I think that's probably where the argument would lie. But um, I mean, maybe another way to look at it would be whether Obi-Wan um, has some kind of agreement with her, her parents, with Bale and Ray to bring her home. Um, or yet another way to look at it um, can be just whether he, regardless of the contractual issues involved, <laughs> there may be done, but um, whether there's a, a duty to bring them, the duty to bring her home that is independent of any kind of contractual duty, but that stems from the special relationship that he has with the two Skywalker children. Mm -hmm. So essentially like going to check and make sure that she actually did get home safely and that he's not misinformed or hearing imperial propaganda or something right yeah which he does at the end he didn't just you know leave off and say oh i i thought Haji was gonna do it right yeah and he he did have to return uh the troid which is she looks really happy to see him and that expression is super sweet then she looks happier to see her droid i don't know how to feel about that because that was like who do you love more, kid? Like your little flying droid or the dude who saved you multiple times? So like there was that reaction. I mean, any um, adult who's ever given a kid a gift knows that feeling. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, yes. I'm yep. right here. Like, <laughs> yeah. Validate me. But yeah. she does. I mean, like it's, it's super, super sweet. And those are all like, it's like, how do we top Grogu? 
I got an idea. And they, they did a really good job. Uh, it also sets the tone for Leia being very empathic. So before the promise, we see her comforting who's scared with Lola. Very sweet. And she talks about how, you know, it, it's distracting kid from being scared. She's scared too. Let's jump forward nine years to uh, A New Hope where they've just escaped the Death Star and Luke saw Kenobi die. Leia saw her planet blow up. She also saw Kenobi die and she's the one comforting Luke. I think that goes to her just being who she is with if somebody's sad, she will comfort them despite the fact that she's just saw like a, you know, six billion people die and the dude who saved her umpteen times when she was 10. So there's, I think, I think that just part of her character and I think that fills in some of those gaps. Um, and does she ever tell Luke uh, that I spent more time with Ben Kenobi than you did? <laughs> My adventure was super awesome so like i don't how do they play that off later um is that just a little secret does she and han like say like so we're never going to talk about this so uh <laughs> so yeah i it's a strange performance contract <clears throat> but no we get into the other fun part of star wars and that's the duty to rescue kenobi senses luke's in danger because reva's on a killing spree and he senses it right through the force and doesn't hesitate to go back to Tatooine. Did, did Kenobi have a duty to go save him? And we've, I put in some material for uh, duty to rescue and I can see one of, one of you did as well. Who wants to jump in first? Christine, I know that smirk. <laughs> no, 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 it's, 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 um, I, I don't have to jump in because I mean, I feel like we did talk a little bit about some of these rules. Um, when we talked about episodes one and two, um, we were just talking about them with respect to Leia instead of with respect to Luke. And so I feel like I kind of have a sense of what I would, where I would land on it. And it's similar to where I would land with Leia. Um, so, I mean, we can re reiterate the general rules, right? So there's there's no general duty to rescue, but a defendant um, but may owe a duty to protect a plaintiff from a third party if there's some kind of special relationship between, um, uh, with a plaintiff. Um, and, you know, I think that's probably the strongest strongest path here to finding a duty, a duty to rescue. Um, we talked a little bit about another role where whereby the general the general rule that there's no duty to rescue does not apply when the person has caused another person to be put in peril um, and that caused the injuries. So, um, I mean, I think you could, you could argue either of uh, either of those um, because Obi-Wan entrusted his communication device with Bale's message on it to Haja who dropped it. Um, so there is a sense in which Obi-Wan has caused Luke to be in the peril under the, the literal language of um, some of that case law that talks about that exception to the rule. Um, it was probably negligent to entrust the device, at least without deleting the content on it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, since he's already read the message, he doesn't really need it anymore. Um, certainly there were other parties who might've been negligent. Maybe Bail was negligent for sending it without using some kind of code word to refer to the, the information that eventually reaches Riva. Um, but um, that may not matter matter so much that others were negligent if, um, if what Obi-Wan did was a substantial factor in causing Luke to be put in that position. Christine, do you have a sense of like how long that substantial factor timeline stretches? Because it seems like at some point it gets so attenuated that there's no, that the this chain of events that you may have set into motion days earlier ultimately put someone in peril. Um, and I'm wondering like if, if there's, you know, sort of across the galaxy, <laughs> um, how maybe a day or two, I wonder how, how the law would treat that kind of distance. Right, or, or Haja simply dropping it. I mean, it's yeah. that kind yeah. of intervening, supervening force that yeah. the, causa- the causal chain. Right, and and you know, in some sense, Obi Wan failed to neutralize Riva, um, and but at the same time, Riva is obviously acting in ways that are very unlawful. So, um, so it's how much how responsible is Obi Wan for that conduct? Of course, but um, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Right. Mm. So, uh, Bethany, is Riva AWOL at this point in time, or does Vader try, you know, trying to execute her, like absolve her of like having to report for duty? So she's she's now free of Imperial service. She's been <laughs> terminated. Yeah. So I actually was looking at this part of the episode both from Obi-Wan's perspective and from Reva's perspective as essentially they both are slash were military officers. So regardless of any civil legal responsibility they might have for their actions, if you view Obi-Wan Kenobi as still a general in the rightful Republic and you view the empire as an illegitimate government, uh, that was enacted via a coup, then Obi-Wan actually has a duty to his mission. Um, And so it's a bit tenuous because the Republic is no longer in power. The Jedi were initially meant to be peacekeepers, but it, you know, they slowly evolved into being military officers somehow. Uh, And so that he's in a tricky place but I actually see him as someone who is charged with a mission and not only charged with the mission, a mission that he willingly accepted. Um, and so if he just gave up on that mission, I would say that that's a dereliction of duty and conduct on becoming of an officer. Um, for Riva, similarly, it's a, are you seeing it from the Imperial perspective or from the legitimate but non-existent Republic government at this point. Um, From the military perspective, it really doesn't matter uh, whether or not you're going to be court-martialed or uh, anywhere from discharge from military to to executed. Uh, You are, if you're AWOL, you're AWOL. (laughs) Um, And they will hunt you down, rightfully so. So... Uh, if Riva could ever like become a part of the resistance, then she could say that, hey, I've joined with the 
legitimate government, this is the right action, these are the correct people who should be in power, uh, and we're working to restore that. Um, but at this point, she's essentially a rogue actor who is AWOL from the Imperial uh, military. One comparison could be Vichy French after France surrendered to the Nazis because de Gaulle was, I'm in London and I'm not quitting and I want my country back. And Kenobi's kind of in that de Gaulle category even if it, I just got to lay low and not get killed and make sure that two kids don't die. Like that's, that's his call to service right now. So he's not doing radio free, uh, you know, force users. It's, it's a very different situation of, of uh, exile is the wrong term, but he's, they're waiting and they're doing their part for a better tomorrow. That said, uh, it, it's really hard to go. Um, I know she's going to go kill a kid. Um, now, doing this research, I found something near and dear to my heart, something about uh, sailors, which could be also be merchant seamen. But the, the rule states, whether a seaman falls or jumps into the water, the duty to rescue arises the instant he goes overboard. So that's, that's nice in my feeling that go save him. You, like you're not supposed to you got to make an effort so so anyway just kind of a fun fun little uh footnote for uh duty to rescue analysis uh Steven, i believe you raised this issue was owen justified shooting first at reva uh under the self-defense and defense of others i don't uh, doctor I don't think that was me, but uh, happy to chime in. Whoever's, was that maybe? So Christine, was that you then? It was. Okay. Um, but I, I, see, I see the note in the outline here and um, I did not add the note. So I will, I will let someone else go first. Okay, so I, I brought in the castle doctrine. So, so self-defense and defense of others goes along the lines of if you have reasonably justifiable fear that someone's going to use lethal force against you, you can use lethal force against them. Now, there are all kinds of caveats to this. Let's look at Owen's situation. He interacted with Riva before. She saw him cut off a woman's hand. He knows she has some rage, rage issues. She threatened him weapon drawn and he stared her down oh she is super dangerous and exay was the dead jedi named nari hanging out in the street for all to see so those are all the reasons to go like i fear for my safety when it comes to self-defense in your home if somebody's like in your home you don't have a duty to retreat at that point now, you could still have a question about, uh, and this is where states can vary, say Texas versus oh, most of the other ones, uh, that there are those who go like, well, if they were on my property, so I shot him. It's like, no. Like, if you see somebody like taking the, the nuts off your car, that doesn't give you legal justification to shoot them. No, like you're not supposed to shoot just a trespasser 
because that could just be someone going like, hey, I'm lost, I need directions. Reva's entered the homestead, lightsaber drawn, and Owen's informed that she's after them. Owen has lots of background information. I think he's justified in shooting first. It's, it's part castle doctrine, it's part reasonable fear, and that she, you don't need to wait for her to take the first swing because the weapon, the lightsaber is out. Christine, your thoughts on this? Um, I, I agree. I think however you analyze it, um, it comes out in favor of Owen. Um, California has a, a penal code section 198.5 that actually provides for a, a presumption under somewhat similar circumstances, right? So that section says that any person using force intended or likely to cause death or great bodily injury within his or her residence, so Owen, um, shall be presumed to have held a reasonable fear of imminent peril of death or great bodily injury to self, family, or a member of the household when that force is used against another person, so Riva, not a member of the family or household who unlawfully and forcibly enters, which she did, or has unlawfully and forcibly entered the residence and the person using the force knew or had reason to believe that the unlawful and forcible entry occurred. So I think whether you rely on that section or whether you just rely on the facts that show the reasonableness of his belief that she's coming to kill Luke and him and Baru, um, I think that he is um, got a valid reason to use deadly force in self-defense. It's, it's hard to argue the other way when she's brandishing a weapon inside his house. <laughs> that's, right. A, right. That's, pretty, that's a pretty justifiable reason to expect or, or fear in imminent bodily injury for sure. Yeah, he doesn't actually shoot her until she takes the lightsaber out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I was the only thing I was wondering too is that how widely do you do you suppose that those um, little stun rings are in like the the setting weapons for stun? Um, is that sort of a military application? Do you suppose like a law enforcement application? Do you think that you know kind of consumer weaponry has those settings? Um, I, not that you would necessarily want to stun oh, Reva, but <laughs> but uh, less lethal weaponry available. Yeah, exactly. Civilians. Yeah. <laughs> well, people can buy tasers, so. Yeah. You think you could have a blaster that has a stun setting for home defense, mm -hmm. and that might turn into an issue of, you know, proportionality that I, I saw her like cut a lady's hands off. I really didn't want to wait to see if stun was going to work on yeah. her. Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, he does. I, this first off, this really makes a new hope sadder in seeing their charred corpses. Like is that, it now has more of a gut punch because we've seen them as good parents. Mm -hmm. I, I like Brew scolding Owen with uh, about Ben's gone. Well, whose fault's that? Yeah. That, that sounds like he's gonna sleep on the couch if he lives. Like that doesn't, I mean, yeah. doghouse type scenario right there. Uh, what have you guys yeah. seen the Baru memes on the internet where it's like no. no one and then Baru like holding two shotguns 
<laughs> so it's essentially like it, it's it's a whole series of memes where it's basically like at the drop of a hat, Baru shows up with like five different weapons ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Very Linda Hamilton. So, you know, just doing her best Sarah Connor. Yeah, oh, so, yeah. So she, so she she puts vegetables in a blender and she's packing heat. So like that's just the way to think of her. And so just a frontier mom. Yeah. So. Packing mama. So yeah. good for her. It's uh, uh but yeah, it's because I rewatched New Hope. It's like, God, this really is a bigger bummer than than I remember when I was four. So uh a lot there. I'm looking but forward was- to I was just going to say, I'm looking forward to a, uh, a Star Wars rewatch in light of Kenobi because I've heard from good friends that it really does land uh, a new hope that is it lands very differently um, in light of Kenobi and adds a lot of depth in the ways that when you have an interconnected universe like this, you hope that the, the motivations and the characterizations deepen and have more richness to them. And I, and I've, I can see that happening yeah. for Star Wars for sure. Yeah, I, I, the show, I think impacted people at an emotional level to a degree Mm -hmm. that many were uncomfortable with it. Like, I think a lot of the critiques online that I've seen uh, anything from as dismissive as like, uh, Obi-Wan was just a pansy. That's one comment I'm thinking of, or, or I, I don't like seeing him so like down and afraid and everything. But I, I think that's a reflection of, like we're we're showing another or shown another side of the universe and another side of these uh characters that we've known for a long time and i i mean how would we respond to um the empire taking over someone like darth sidious being the ruler of the known universe essentially um like it in some ways it it reflects well on our current events of anything from seeing Russia invade Ukraine to any recent events and whatever your opinions may be, but we're seeing an uncomfortable reflection of human beings really struggling. And that brings a level of gravitas to the original trilogy. To not have your faith completely shattered, you know, for him to go like we lost. And yeah. his plan was, I just, I just need to stay alive. I'm, I'm a butcher now, and I need to make sure Luke Skywalker lives. Like that's his. I'm like, he still stays on mission, but he's clearly broken from the experience, and it would be really difficult not to be. Uh, but he, he finds his focus and he comes back. Uh, like. This past has been kind of rough with you know, Supreme Court opinions and doing some really horrific things or seeing a justice openly attack substantial due process and listing cases that give civil rights protections saying we should look at these again. That freaks people out, but it also gets people to get organized and to go, no, no, you say we have to vote, we'll turn out. And, and again, that's one of those messages about Star Wars. People do turn to show up to do the right thing. So there's hope doesn't die. Um, we rise up. 
which brings us to Riva. And I'm so glad that Riva lived. You know, when Rise of Skywalker ended and it's like, hey, we'll kill Ben Solo. It's like seeking atonement is far more interesting after doing some really horrific things. And death is the easy way out to go, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about how do you go on with, I did, people died because of me. And I'm just going to immediately die and we won't have to worry about it. Reva survives, has guilt, makes the conscious decision for, like, I'm not going to become a child killer, and takes Luke home in a way that doesn't break canon because Luke never sees a lit lightsaber. Uh, he just sees his aunt sucker punch Reva, which is glorious. Uh, but that raises all kinds of issues with how do you defend her? And so one from the legal side of it, and then the spiritual side of it is atonement for sins. And because she, she committed more than a few, uh, but just to, to list the crimes to defend her, it was attempted murder of the bartender, battery of Nari, the Jedi, not the lawyer, uh, maiming a woman whose hand was cut off, kidnapping Leia, attempted murder of the Grand Inquisitor, attempted murder of Vader, attempted murder of Luke Skywalker, and uh, just torturing the hell out of Kenobi, raking him over the fire. And so, yeah. She, and that's I mean, just the stuff we saw. Like, who, who yeah. knows what else she did in her rise to become Grand Inquisitor? Yeah, she... In, in like the interrogation of Leia, it's like, I'm going to kidnap a kid who's royalty. And now I'm going to try to intimidate her and say like, hey, put her in the rack to be tortured. So how do you defend that? Um, Christine, you got the most trial experience out of all of us. <laughs> <laughs> this seems to be a job for you. So. <laughs> When life hands you in an all seemingly impossible case. <laughs> when I saw this question, I was like, is Josh trying to kill us? Should we try to attempted murder? <laughs> like seven, seven alleged crimes here, and four of them are attempts. <laughs> He's um, a bad man. <laughs> we're going to be here till tomorrow. <laughs> um, right. Um, okay. Well, We've got four attempts. So we, I mean, we could start by talking about attempts. Um, I think, I think the fact that the attempts don't, the attempts are mainly completed. I think before um, you would get to a, a lot of the the defenses that she might have. The um, just to briefly go over. So, so under California law to. Um, be liable for attempt, she would have had to have taken at least one direct step towards killing another person, which in all of these instances she does. I mean, there's not much, there's not much to argue there. I mean, maybe the bartender, you could say, you know, well, you have to have specific intent. Maybe you could say her specific intent wasn't to kill him because she somehow knew Nari was going to stop him, but I don't really think that's a very strong argument. Because what if she was just wrong about Nari? I mean, then the guy would have just been killed. Um, so um, part of the difficulty with, with attempt is that 
Um, and, and I was thinking of this mainly with respect to Luke is that um, even if she abandons her, her attempt to kill him before actually killing him, um, it doesn't, it, that doesn't really get her out of trouble um, under the California law. If, if she's a person who attempts to commit murder is still guilty, even if after taking a direct step, they abandon that effort because the crime is complete once the intent is formed and the direct step is taken. At that point, if she abandons, she can only abandon the substantive crime um, of murder. Um, she can't go back and undo the attempt part of it. And so, um, so that's sort of a difficulty right out of the gate. Um, we had talked a little bit earlier in our discussion of episodes one and two about whether the, the common practice of torturing the inquisitors before they, in order to get them to become inquisitors, could lead to an insanity defense. Um, and I think that's, that's the most viable option I could come up with for Riva, um, because I think she... Well, okay, so to, so to qualify for that defense, she would have to have, at the time she committed all of these crimes, had a mental disease or defect. And then two, because of that disease or defect, she had to have been incapable of knowing or understanding the nature or quality of her act or incapable of knowing or understanding that the act was morally or legally wrong. Um, so I think on the first prong, we've got some really strong evidence um, that she does have a mental disease or defect, even though we don't specifically know her situation, whether she was tortured. Um, there's really strong evidence that the series shows us about trauma from Order 66, right? She has dissociative flashbacks, two of which occur in the scenes where she's committing the attempts to murder. Um, she witnessed a mass murder. She, um, she was hiding with dead bodies and, and watched them grow cold. The fact that the traumatic events occurred when she was very young probably made them have an even greater impact on her. At one point, she says that the braver you seem, the more afraid you are. And I learned that at a very young age. Um, and she may have a bit of survivor's guilt going on as well. At one point, she commented that she tried to help, but she was just too weak. And so all of that, I think, adds up to some type of post-traumatic stress disorder or, you know, something that would probably qualify as having a mental disease or defect. And then the question would be, well, does that dis disease or defect make her incapable of knowing what she was doing um, at the time? And I think part of the difficulty is that even though she has those flashbacks, um, the crime of attempted murder is al already complete before she suffers them. Um, and, and that's part of the problem with trying to to argue that she didn't understand the nature or quality of what she was doing. So if it, it would be one thing if, um, you know, she had no designs on revenge on Vader and he just approached her um, while she was in the middle of the flashback. And because of the flashback, she thought it was Anakin Skywalker coming to execute order 66 and kill her. And so she had to try to kill him right away or something like that. Um, but that's, that's not exactly what's going on here. So I think, um, if that doesn't really work because of the timing, um, you might be left trying to argue that, well, the trauma during her formative years was so great that she didn't understand that kidnapping, maiming, and attempting to kill all these people is wrong because due to her trauma, she had developed this delusional worldview where killing Vader is the highest good and any step towards that goal is also good. Um, and there's some indication that that's the case, right? Owen asks her what she wants and she says justice, which, could indicate that she really does genuinely believe that 
kidnapping and killing one of Anakin's children would be just. Um, it's a tough argument, but I think, you know, if she's your client and there's facts that could possibly support that defense, you have no reason to believe those facts are wrong. Like you have a duty to at least try for it for her. I, I think going at it as an affirmative defense perspective um, is the right way to go. I think it's the only way to go because she has years of planning and carrying out actions. So it's not like this was, you know, a Tuesday afternoon and she had a flashback. It was, she spent years of her life preparing for revenge. So I think the, the issue then is one of uh, PTSD, of what the trauma of having to hide, hide under her friend's bodies and feel them grow cold and the homeless and all the trauma that she then experienced is the defense that you're going to offer. And I think it's in the realm of an insanity defense, but I also think it's, it's just a little bit different um, going for a delusional mindset of, you know, that the goal was revenge was, was her option uh, for seeking justice for all those who she loved that died. Um, she, it's the argument. I think it's the best argument. Would really need to research it on the, on how to pull that off. I do think it would be a good mock trial for us to do. And, uh, but I'm just sick and twisted that way. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, you, you got that look in your eye. What, what do you, what do you think, buddy? Well, the only other thing I can think of is duress. Um, and it wouldn't, um, but there's a couple of major problems with that, of course, is and duress is never a defense to murder. So you can never justify killing someone else because you thought you were going to be killed. Um, but it can be a defense to other crimes. Um, but the other big problem is that the threat to yourself, like in other words, you have to feel like you are in immediate danger. You or yourself are in immediate danger if you don't do this bad thing. Um, so that's that might work for some of the crimes where she's um, in the presence of the Grand Inquisitor, for example, if she feels like she might, um, you know, if she shows any weakness, if she falters, that she might um, be injured or killed, um, then that might work. But when she's like kind of off doing her own thing, like when she's chasing Luke, there's no immediate threat to, to her. Um, so that's that's kind of a stretch too. But yeah, and also, you know, sort of talking about affirmative defenses, which are obviously the best way to knock out criminal charges, but also is the, the um, stuff we're talking about with kind of like background and trauma and responses that can also play an important role in an advocate's um, job during sentencing. Um, and so it not maybe, um, just getting the, the punishment more focused on um, on sort of restorative things and not so much um, um, the punishment if, if there's sort of extenuating factors, of course. So Bethany, as if you were a juror and you've heard those arguments of you know, the prosecution slam dunk, she spent years planning to kill a, to kidnap a child in order to get to Kenobi, in order to murder Vader. And along that path, she maims people. She's probably killed people in order to, to get there. Would you be sympathetic to the defense of she was so traumatized 
is why she thought all of those wrongs were, were not wrong. I would be sympathetic, but I, I don't think that that would lead me to uh, say that she did not deserve time behind bars. Four person so. Bethany reading the verdict of the jury. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it, we can go back in time in our history uh, with uh, Nazis being prosecuted for war crimes. And just because they were ordered to do so, or they uh, underwent trauma or even when they were terrified for their own lives, it's, it's, there's not a carte blanche to just commit crimes. Um, yeah. Even when you're in that kind of a setting. But that's, I think there's a difference between following an unlawful order, which is, you know, the Nuremberg situation of you knew what you were doing was wrong and you did it anyway. You know, so orders be damned. You don't get to do that to the, the trauma situation that we have here and someone doing a years long campaign to try to kill one person and, and she racks up, a, well, we're, we're presuming she racks up a body count along the way. She definitely has a bunch of attempts and there is at least one person with, with missing a hand. So like there's, um, I mean, she does openly commit battery. We see that a lot. So if she does end up with jail time, I mean, I do think she would escape a death sentence. Uh, uh, but if she gets out after, say, 20 years, uh, there's the atonement side. And like, none of us are theologians here, but I, I do think that's the interesting uh, issue for, you did something horrible, what do you do after that? after realizing I don't want to be that person anymore and I can do better. Tala um, says, now I do this, you know, she's, cause she makes, she tries to fix, like she can't fix what happened for her, but she can maybe fix things for other people. Um, yeah. And I, I think that, um, that, you know, we're the audience of Star Wars, um, you know, not a lot of us have hopefully committed crimes against other people, but all of us have done things that we regret. And all of us have said things that we wish we hadn't said. Um, and maybe we've even done things that we think are unforgivable or that other people have told us are unforgivable. But that's it's sort of what the, the uplifting message of Star Wars is that, especially when you see it with a character like Reva, is that no one's beyond asking for forgiveness and trying to fix what happened. Um, and it's just such a powerful message. It's such a good balm in these rocky times <laughs> to feel that spark of, of, you know, of Obi-Wan's kindness and his willingness to extend forgiveness and to help people put, help put people on a path to atone for what they've done. And I'm, and I, I hope we get more Reva. Um, I would love to see what happens to her Me next. Too. Um, I, I would love to see what that journey is for her. Can I say yeah. one more thing in mitigation for her? Oh yeah. <laughs> She finally put the bad boss from the crate dragon meat processing processing plant in his place. Oh, that was that guy. You're right. Yeah. You got something to say, guys. Smash the cup out of his hand. <laughs> With the force. Yeah. There's a, 
Yes. I so totally did. didn't connect that character. That's amazing. Yeah, he, he learned, maybe I should make some changes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like there, it's very, there's very few TV shows or movies that have someone get sense slapped into them. This might be one of those examples of, whoa, he did have some sense knocked into him. Uh, but yes, this Kenobi's empathy, there's there's thought there from, you know, it's at the end of the, with the fight with Anakin uh, or Vader, depending on your point of view. And I mean, this is superb acting with, okay, give me sad, give me tearing and, and then apologize. So masterfully done. Uh, so I, again, love what they did. But yes, I would like more Riva. <clears throat> I would like more Roken. I'd like more Haja. And, you know, do we get to see them six years down the line by the time of Andor? That would be interesting. And it's just path. getting started, as he said. Yeah. It does, does the path turn into the rebellion? And I don't know, but uh, I'm sure some story writer does. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so closing thoughts. So let's let's go around the horn uh, alphabetically by first name. So Bethany. So I, I mean, I think that the season ended with quite the bang, and and I'm going to go back to Christine's comments on the duel. Well, everyone I think was in agreement that was. Uh, so incredible and breathtaking, actually. I definitely rewatched the duel multiple times. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I'm very interested to see the progress of the characters. And uh, Riva has a special place in my heart as, as, uh, as, as sort of cold as I might have sounded as a potential... Um, like member of the jury it's it's she she has such pull as a character like you can see in ways how broken she is and how much she wants to atone um and and i think most people can identify with that it's very very few people are without life regrets of some kind and so it's it's easy to see that reflected in her but for her, it's the vast majority of her life that she's looking back on, that she has doubts if she will ever be able to overcome it. You know, has she turned into the person that she's been trying to essentially get revenge on, get justice against her entire life? Yeah. Revenge is not justice. But, uh... Yeah, and I think she conflated the two and right up until the very end. Oh, killing a child. Maybe this is a horrible idea. What have I become? Uh, and but she stops. And that's yeah, uh, just brilliantly done. Uh, Christine, your thoughts? Um, yeah, you know, I, I enjoyed getting to know um, Obi Wan in a in a different way from you know the Clone Wars or the the prequels. Um, they present a, a really different picture of him in this series, and um, I thought it was really interesting. Um, I, I liked watching the trajectory of him um, feeling, going from feeling defeated to regaining his strength and regaining his confidence, and 
you know, than wanting to get back into the fight. Um, so I think too, I think, you know, um, Bethany's comments earlier about the, the idea of the mission still being the mission, right? Like it's, um, you know, you suffered a setback, you suffered a loss, but that doesn't mean that um, you're going to give up. And, you know, definitely it, it continues. And I think that's probably, that is probably why I, I continue to think that there's a, there's a, a special duty and a special relationship between um, Ben and the, and the two kids. I mean, he's really in the best position to protect them, having spent significant time with um, both their parents and his past experiences as a, as a Jedi. And he's, you know, kind of, it's comforting to know he's always there in the background, keeping watch over them. Yeah, Steven? agreed. I, I think that um, as I was thinking about the series, that maybe Obi-Wan and Leia are two of the least polarizing characters in the Star Wars universe. I think everyone can agree that they're awesome characters. And the fact that they centered those two characters together, um, I think was kind of a masterstroke. Um, it was genius. And, um, you know, I'm all for Star Wars, you know, exploring other timelines, exploring other parts of the Star Wars saga um, and maybe not always coming back to the Skywalkers, but um, gosh, when they can do it so successfully and, and make those stories so much richer by seeing kind of a backstory that we didn't know before, I'm all for it. Um, and I, th I thought it was, I really enjoyed watching it. Yeah, I definitely want more. And uh, I would love to see a season two. You know, they would just take their time and figure out the story that needs to be told. And because there's nine years of time that they can explore and just, and if he gets to see 11 year old, yeah, cool. Um, again, it goes to what do you tell Luke when you try later? But uh, uh, I'd be very happy to see that. And I'm also very grateful for what we have in fandom right now. We're gonna have Bad Batch season two soon. And we're gonna have Andor on August 31. Lucky, lucky. I remember in the early 90s when the Hair to the Empire books came out and people were ecstatic. So, this is we're getting Star Wars multiple times a year in live action animation, and it's good. So, I'm very grateful for the world that we have right now. Um, and lots of legal analysis we get to discuss. Um, on that note, um, all of us will be at Comic-Con. Can't say what we're doing yet, but there could be similar things that we discuss. So stay tuned for about two weeks before the show when the schedule goes public, but we will be there. Uh, we have multiple outlines and prep to do. So just that's all I'm going to say about that. And uh, get ready for a rocking good time. So, so for that, with everyone, stay safe, stay healthy. We're not completely out of the woods yet. So wear your mask and use hand sanitizer. And uh, uh, stay geeky. We will see you all soon. Yeah.